Attention, your attention please. The following podcast contains spoilers. If you haven't seen the film yet, then do not continue listening. Thank you. Grimmer. My name is Francisco. I'm Alberto. We're two brothers separated by time and distance, reconnecting through our mutual love of horror movies. And you're joining us for a double feature. Two Canadian classic horror movies from the 70s, Black Christmas and The Brood. And I saw both in the movie theater at the Anthology Film Archive in New York City. A little braggy. Braggy. <laughs> Believe me, I can I can barely drag any of my friends to go down there, even though I love it, and I think it's fantastic and a great place. You literally watched this on the big screen just a few weeks ago. Exactly. With no subtitles. No subtitles for the non-Canadian-speaking public. <laughs> <laughs> I assume you saw it on the small screen. Exactly, with yeah. subtitles. With subtitles. And what order did you see them in? The Brood first, which I had never seen, and I watched Black Christmas second, which I'd seen quite a few times, actually. I own a DVD copy of it. I saw them in the same order, so I think maybe we should discuss them in that order. That sounds good to me. So I'm surprised you'd never seen The Brood before. I was shocked, honestly, by how great it was. Wow. What other early Cronenberg movies had you seen? Had you seen Rabid or...? I had definitely not seen Rabid, though I remember the box tantalizingly in the video store case. Right. And I had not seen Shivers, though right after I watched The Brood, I did see Shivers on... Not, not quite your recommendation, but you had said it was something interesting... And remind us what the plot is of Shivers. Shivers is a story about a remote high-rise on a lonely island outside of Toronto where a very exclusive living complex has been built of upper-middle-class white people. They are seemingly self-sufficient with a dry cleaner, a general store, a medical facility, everything that you could hope for people in the complex start getting afflicted by a sexually transmitted virus that causes them to go insane and have rabid orgies and murder one another. Shivers felt like, honestly, a very amateurish effort, very unsophisticated on a lot of levels, like the camera work, the sound, everything was very crude. Some of the ideas were interesting. It reminded me a little bit of that recent J.G. Ballard adaptation, High Rise. Interesting. Yes, yeah, so I meant to ask, uh, which did you like better, Shivers or The Brood? Oh, The Brood, absolutely. See, I had seen The Brood before, but my movie-going companions had not. And while I was watching it, I was wondering, for the novice viewer, if it was obvious what was supposed to be like a shocking ending. What did you see coming, and what didn't you see coming? Well, um, before... <laughs> <laughs> we always go through the synopsis first. So for the people who aren't familiar, so why don't you summarize the brood first? A couple in Toronto are feuding 
the wife has been committed to a very cult-like sanitarium, which is led by a very charismatic leader, played by Oliver Reed, who pushes all of his patients to psychological breaking points of releasing anger with the intended effect of having them burst out into boils and having these severe physical reactions. I would say it's their physical manifestations of the emotions they're feeling. Correct. The wife is kept in seclusion, seemingly in a constant state of semi-hypnosis. The therapist, cult leader, is constantly pushing her buttons and getting a terrible, murderous rise out of her. One by one, the individuals that she is furious at in her therapy sessions are murdered by these bizarre little homunculi who really resemble her daughter. But deformed. But deformed. Hideously deformed, shriveled up versions of her child. As the story progresses, it's clear that the psychiatrist, cult leader, is trying to keep a lid on what is happening. But what remains unclear is if he fully understands the effects of what he's doing, what the impact is. In the end, it turns out that the patient is actually physically giving birth to angry little rage monsters that are mute ciphers of her id and are exacting revenge. And over time, uh, you find out there's almost like a barrack full of these extensions of her psyche. That was one of the creepiest things. She's kept in a shed out behind the Institute, and there is basically an army barracks above the shed that she's in where the rage monsters are sequestered and are given beds and children's clothing and just sleep and live there. One of the characters in the movie who is jealous of her calls her Queen Bee. Yes. And so she seems to be like a Queen Bee producing drones. That's entirely true. Yep. Was it clear to you as these murders are happening that it's clear that she's somehow the cause of them? Yes. Did you foresee that the killers were being produced by her? Yes, but I thought it was some sort of magic. I didn't think it was going to delve into the realm of science fiction as much as it does. You thought it was more fantasy? Exactly, exactly. I thought this was like a bizarre haunting. Somehow she was sending these creatures, but I didn't think they were actually real, even though they were dressed in kids' clothes. I think when I saw it the first time, it was a real shock. Again, that was a long time ago. I saw it on video. I was in high school, so in the the early 80s. But seeing it now, I was concerned that the people with me might think it was too obvious. And what was their reaction? They had no idea it was going to be in the way it's finally revealed. It's a, a shocking scene where she lifts up her gown. This is the climax of the movie and shows an embryonic sack protruding from her lower belly. She takes that sack and with her teeth tears open the lining and licks the embryo, which will become one of these killer dwarf children. Her torso is covered in pustules of different stages of development. They seem to be all moving towards her belly. 
So she's obviously producing lots of these things. Lots. Yeah, lots. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I found it still pretty shocking. You could tell that there was a connection between her and what was happening, but I couldn't make the leaps of logic to get to where I could understand how she was controlling them or how it was happening. For you, was that the most shocking moment in the movie? I think the murders were fairly shocking. Because I, the reason I ask is because I think it's a tie between that big revelation and there's a murder that takes place in front of first graders or kindergarten children Yes, that rivals that shock. <laughs> yes, that is a great scene. I have to say also the earlier kill in the film where Nola's mother is murdered in her kitchen, the very first murder, uh, is very shocking as well. Agreed. Funnily enough, I was watching the movie and Stephen was walking through the bedroom where I was watching it. He saw the shriveled up little hand reaching in to pick up the meat mallet and he just ran right out of the room. (laughs) In terms of the murders, it's the mother, her father, the school teacher who she thinks is trying to seduce her Is it ex-husband or separated husband? I think they're separated. Separated husband. The two most efficient ones, I think, are the mom and the the school teacher. She really, in her therapy sessions that we view, she really blames the mom for physically abusing her. And it's unclear whether that is true or not because... It's a questionable source. Yes. And the father... I think was on some level a little less vicious because his sin was that he didn't protect her enough. They're all, they're all fairly gruesome. The mom, Juliana, is very self-pitying and really eager to play the victim at every opportunity. And so is her daughter. And it kind of calls everything they say into question. Oh, that's interesting. And she's also the mom's an alcoholic, it seems. What we're looking at is cycles of misery both physical and mental abuse in families being carried on generationally between parents and kids and grandkids. The the granddaughter, Candy, seems traumatized from the very beginning of the film. But what you're saying is encapsulated and summarized by the last moment of the movie, that this is a saga that will continue because they show the climactic shock is the revelation that the woman's producing these sacks, but the the very last shock in the movie is they zoom in on the daughter, the young child, and she's producing a blister that is going to be some sort of manifestation of her psyche as well. So it, the cycle, as you said, continues. You totally capture what the, I think he's trying to say. The film is about the misery of family yeah. and how we have terrible, broken relationships and we foolishly fall into making the same mistakes our parents did. Uh, what hotel are you staying in? Park Plaza. You know, I was even thinking about going out to that old house again. <laughs> I still have the key after all these years. Juliana used to make a big fuss about never having changed the locks. <laughs> I could never understand why. Maybe it's because she really couldn't admit that we were finished. Ah, oh, Frank, when I think about you and Nola and this sweet child having to go through the same heartaches we went through, it's... It's enough to make you cry. Yes, it is. My understanding is that Cronenberg made this movie while he was fighting for custody of his daughter while his ex-wife joined a cult. 
it was a terrible time in his life, and he seems to have channeled that into this story. Given that understanding, it's kind of on the nose. This is a worrisome movie on a couple of levels insofar as our main antagonist is female and she is just completely irrational and crazed and quixotic and impossible to anticipate or please her. Yes, Candace? Yes, sweetie? Mommy, you hurt me. You hit me with your fists and, and you scratched me with your nails. You No, I didn't, sweetie. You must have had a bad dream. Mummies don't do that. Mummies don't hurt their own children. They do. They never do. They never do. They sometimes do. Sometimes, but then they're bad mummies. They're fucked up mummies. Mine was. Fucked up and bad. It's interesting in that in her therapy sessions with Oliver Reed, she talks about wanting to reconcile with her husband and with her child. I wish we could be together again. Just the three of us. But even when she's presented with that, even when her husband approaches her gently at the end, there's this sort of terrible, mad glee with which she rejects it. I think that being discontented is kind of her default position, kind of like her mom. Interesting. Nothing's wrong except with me. No, no, that's Frank. Frank talking, Frank twisting my words. He won't be patient. He won't trust me. He won't wait until I get well. He thinks that I'm, that I'm turning into my mother, day by day, moment by moment. He thinks that I'm trying to make candy into, into baby Nola. Is he right? No, 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 that's the last thing on earth. I, who's that? It's daddy. The other main villain in the movie is definitely Oliver Reed, who plays Dr. Hal Ragland. He's the author of The Shape of Rage. The name of his cult is called uh, Soma Free Psychoplasmatics. What do you think that means? Uh, Well, Soma, from Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, was the future super drug that was meant to pacify everyone and placate everyone. I didn't realize that. And here, uh, it's the opposite. He doesn't want people to be placated. He wants them to live out and uh, feel their anger or or sadness and emotions. Oh, how interesting. He's completely against medication or repression. He wants to give shape to people's feelings of fury. Show me your anger, Nola. Show it to me. Go all the way through it. Go all the way through it to the end. Right to the end. I love how chic his office is, and he dresses like a a sensei at a dojo. So do a lot of the patients as well during his therapy sessions. You're not looking at me, Mike. 
You're not looking at me in the eyes. That's weak. Only weak people do that. I could look you in the eye if, if I wanted to, Daddy. I, I just... I just don't want to look you in the eye. I guess you're just a weak person. Hmm? You must have got that from your mother. It probably would have been better for you had you been born a girl. Then we could have named you Michelle. Hmm? You see, weakness is more acceptable than a girl, Michelle. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. I mean, Mike. I keep forgetting. There's this opening scene where he is having this weird interaction with one of his patients, and it reminded me so much of Peter Schaefer's play Equus. This is me, Daddy. This is what you do to me inside. Go all the way through it, Michelle. Go all the way through it to the end. Come out the other end. Don't stop in the middle. I'm watching you. I'm watching everything you do, Mike. There's a sense of, like, the psychiatrist making these cathartic breakthroughs with a patient. But I think Cronenberg has a lot to say about how addicted people become to catharsis. There's a lot of ways that psychiatry and <laughs> psychoanalysis, I think, are portrayed negatively in this movie. And one of them is that it becomes like a fetish-like crutch for people who are incredibly needy and need to relive and refeel and recreate experiences again and again. Hate you, Daddy. Speak up, girl! I hate you! I hate you because I love you. What surprised me, I had forgotten that this very intimate therapy session where the camera's really just focused on, on these two characters, uh, we later realize it's in front of a whole amphitheater of basically, t like, it's a tour bus that's come to view this new therapy that Oliver Reed is the head of. Psychological breakthroughs through reenactments of trauma. Oliver Reed, for horror fans, was also the father in Burnt Offerings, which was one of my favorite horror movies growing up. Did you ever see that? Oh, yeah, I did. And I was a big fan of that film as well. But I always remember him for playing Bill Sykes in the movie version of the musical Oliver. Oh, that's right. And he scared the bejesus out of me because he beats Nancy to death in the final scene. Oh, so terrible. It's a, a scene of uh, brutality that is so horrible. I couldn't believe that I was allowed to watch it as a kid. All kids watch that. Like, Oliver was the movie that every child of our age saw. Yeah. What did you think, as two brothers who are horror fans, but also two gay brothers, what did you think of what seemed like crazy gay subtext? First, the therapy session with this father uh, figure, the Oliver Reed, and this patient is weirdly sexual. Absolutely. It seemed to me. And also, there's an interesting scene where the husband who's uh, trying to get his daughter back is having a conversation with Oliver Reed in his office, and Oliver Reed is in a bathrobe a shorty bathrobe, having showered after this therapy session. And it's so incongruous to see a fully dressed man, Art Hindle, having this conversation with Oliver Reed, who's in a, in a bathrobe. Frank, it's been some time. What can I do for you? I want to see Nola. I want to see my wife now. You know she's still undergoing intensive therapy. I can't let you break that isolation. And the third gay subtext seems to be the relationship between Oliver Reed and his assistant, a young, very good-looking man who kind of has like a Smithers air to him. How many people do we have at the main house? 27. 
Okay, I want them out by this afternoon. And the house closed. It'll be hard in them, Hal. Especially Mike. Then do it gently. But get them out. All right. Cronenberg is the master of hitting notes of discomfort and distress, things that I think would make a very mainstream audience uncomfortable and squirm in their seats. The very intimate encounter at the beginning between him and his patient where Oliver Reed is playing a macho, chauvinistic, disapproving father who insists on calling his son Michelle. The son is falling apart with his love and terror of his dad and disrobes showing a body that's covered in open weeping lesions. It is really disturbing on so many levels. And it seems like it's a father criticizing his son for being gay. I mean, clearly he's calling him a girl's name. Absolutely. And later when we catch up with that character, he doesn't really want to move out of that moment. You be my daddy. He won't do it anymore. And my real daddy won't do it. And that bastard, Dr. Raglan, won't do it anymore. You see, my real daddy rejected me. And my... My, my, my surrogate daddy rejected me. That's just fucking wonderful, don't you think? He just wants to recreate it and live it over and over again. It is a moment of kind of rapturous ecstasy for him. Yeah, it's really disturbing. As scary as I always find him, Oliver Reed has a very strong sexual presence. In his office, wearing the, the shorty bathrobe, he is uh, an intimidating figure. And with sex appeal. Yeah, barrel-chested with very strong legs. <laughs> Which we get to see, yes. Well, you let her see Candace on the weekends, don't you? Yes, Frank, I do, but then that's different. Regular visits from her daughter was built into her program from the very start. Yeah, well, her program has just changed. What do you mean, Frank? You sound hostile. His assistant, who looks almost a little bit too much like the dad, like Art Hendel, who plays the husband of Nola. They cast two actors, for me, look a little bit too similar to each other. It's probably their hair. It's it's that period feathered 70s hair. They're both very, very handsome men. Very handsome, I agree, but the assistant seems much more feminine than Art Hendel and is more subservient. Art Hindle is breaking the rules, doing what he has to to save his family, and is very masculine. The assistant follows orders. I want to take a minute to say that I really love Art Hindle. I always thought he was really handsome. The only thing that I'd really seen him in before this was as Brooke Adams' boyfriend in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1977 version. He was in it only very briefly, but in this film, he plays the dad so well. It reminds me of how good Cronenberg is with actors. There's just this understated weariness to him, wearing that duffel coat. You know, sometimes it just kills me to think that I might have screwed my kid up already. She's not even six. It's not just you. No. No, sometimes when I'm being easy on myself, I say, well, it's not your fault. You got taken in. You got involved with a woman who married you for your sanity, hoping it would rub off. Instead, it started to work the other way. I agree. I think he's uh, he's very handsome and mesmerizing to look at. He's great in this. Yeah, he's he's really wonderful. I wanted to go back to the shocking scene where the school teacher is murdered by these, let's call them dwarves, because she could be a threat to the marriage and she could be seducing Art Hindle. 
Clearly, you see that this was filmed in front of the kids. The kids are actually in the room crying next to the actress who's playing the school teacher with the blood on her. And so there's no effort to shield the kids. In fact, they are putting the kids dramatically right in the scene. I immediately thought of an interview I'd read with the uh, Babadook filmmaker who on purpose shot scenes that might be disturbing to the child in that movie with the kid in the other room. So, for example, there's uh, in the Babadook, the mother is seeing things. It may be true, it may be not, but she's definitely having a breakdown and she at different points starts screaming at the child. And the director didn't have the child in the room when they were filming the screaming. So the basically the actress is screaming at nothing. Here, it's the opposite. It felt so sadistic to, to subject these little kids, even though it's make-believe, to this grisly scene. The children's reaction in the classroom where Miss Mayer is murdered seems very authentic. Yeah, they don't seem like they're acting. They seem like they were truly terrified. Kids frozen in place at their seats, some kids running away, none of the kids trying to help her. That seems very, very real to a child's reaction to an adult being attacked. It has overtones of Shelley Duvall in The Shining, where you're getting a very authentic, unhinged reaction by really applying some genuine mental cruelty to your actors. But I can't imagine how you would have gotten better performances out of the children, honestly. <laughs> it's true. It reminded me a little bit, talking about it, of The Birds, too, where you have a, a lot of children terrified. Oh, sure. So the thing I was going to say about the assistant to Oliver Reed is that he also had a small role that I'll always remember him from in Stephen King's The Dead Zone. Oh. In the middle act of the movie, once Christopher Walken gets his gift for looking into the future, he runs into a sheriff played by Tom Skerritt who wants to help him solve some local murders by a serial killer. Christopher Walken realizes that it's the deputy who's murdering people. And it's played by the same good-looking young actor who plays the assistant in this film. So he basically seems innocent in this movie. Is I remember liking The Dead Zone, but I don't remember this role. Was he convincing as the serial killer? Yes. Oh, great. Yes. And he commits suicide very horrifyingly by swallowing a pair of scissors once he gets fingered by Christopher Walken. It's a gruesome scene. There's a really good film score for The Brood. It's Howard Shore, who's a famous film composer. Lots of crazy, mad strings. I, I wrote a little note to myself that it put me in the mind of Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho. Strings make you think of madness and anger. And there's definitely a lot of both in this movie. Absolutely. There was one other thing that this movie reminded me of, which was the child-sized murderer from Don't Look Now from 1973. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the hands and the faces are so shriveled of the little anger homunculi that it made me think that these were little older people and not children at all. So it reminded me of that Donald Sutherland horror movie. With Julie Christie. 
with Julie Christie, of course. Remind me in Don't Look Now, it is a old person that looks like a child from the back, right? Correct. The image of a little girl with a red cloak forcibly reminds Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie of their recently deceased daughter. They think they are in a ghost story. And Donald Sutherland especially begins chasing after what he thinks is a spectral image, not realizing, in fact, it is a demented, older serial killer who is a dwarf. And when he finally catches up with this creature, uh, she cuts his throat and he dies it's too late. It's, and, and the film ends there. It is really, really horrible. When the daughter, Candy, finds the grandmother's body, she doesn't react at all. And then she locks eyes with the creature that's hiding behind the railings of the stairs and with bloody fingers gripping the rails. It's another really good scene. <laughs> Lots of good scenes in this. And that creature, they're sisters. Yeah. They have the same mother. They're, I guess they're... If there's no father, common father, they I don't know if you'd call them stepsisters or half-sisters, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the other half is missing, but they are definitely related. And the police psychiatrist encourages Art Hendel that he make Candy remember the murder of the grandmother. Speaking bluntly, I don't think that your daughter escaped this incident entirely unscathed. You think she saw what happened? I suspect she did, or she saw something which traumatized her, confused her, disturbed her in some way. The officer who found her said that she was very difficult to wake up. To me, that indicates a kind of abnormal deep sleep, which a lot of people, even children, will use to escape something that's too painful to face. And she still says that she doesn't remember being brought to her grandmother's or seeing her at all. Do you think she'll remember eventually? Mr. Carvis, I think you must encourage her to remember. Why? My concern is that the child could have a very serious breakdown if she doesn't come to terms with what she's experienced. You see, these things tend to express themselves in one way or another. I've seen five-year-olds like your daughter with ulcers as bad as any middle-aged businessman. But again, I feel like Cronenberg here is saying maybe the alternative is worse than repressing a trauma. It might be worse to, to actually fully experience it. He's definitely biased against therapists. There's a character named Jan Hartog who has a lawsuit against Dr. Ragland, and he wears a towel around his neck. Cronenberg, who's so well-known for body horror, this Hartog guy has a horrific goiter that he's developed through his therapy with Dr. Ragland. He's hoping that the litigation that he started, even if it isn't successful, will publicly ruin the Institute. His manifestation, unlike the dwarf killers or the boils at the beginning of the movie, is a form of cancer. Correct. It's very gruesome, and we only see it briefly, but it's protruding from his neck. When this look impressive in court? <sighs> hmm? Do you like it? I do. That's raglan. That's psychoplasmics. <laughs> it's called lymphosarcoma. And it's spreading. Oh, and there's one, one last thing about this. The police detectives are really interesting. They kind of embarrassedly admit how they overlooked finding the little midget creature in the house after the uh, murder of the grandmother. 
they never suspect the husband. You know, if this were like a Stephen King book or a Stephen King film, there would be a lot of time spent on the police treating the husband as the prime suspect. And there being all sorts of misunderstandings because they can't wrap their mind around the supernatural or crazy theory of what the killers truly are. But in this case, they believe everything. It's surprising how also the police don't really bat an eye at the fact that they've got a specimen of one of these killers, and they realize that it doesn't have a belly button. They let Frank watch the uh, the autopsy in the examination room, <laughs> which doesn't seem quite like the protocol. Our friend has very strange eyes. They have irises, but no retinas. I should think his vision of the world is very distorted. And I'm pretty certain he sees things only in black and white. No colors. The upper lip is cleft. A real hair lip. But the palate is not. And the tongue is too thick and inflexible for proper speech. He has no teeth. But you get a pretty nasty bite from these strange beak-like gums. You would think that the world media would jump on a new life form. (laughs) (laughs) And that brings us to the last point of interest. There's an external deformity. I mean, apart from the lack of sexual organs. It's extremely subtle and extremely provocative. I wonder if either of you have noticed it. Has no navel. No what? No belly button. No sexual organs, that's right. So we're not even sure it's really a sister. It's a sibling, but uh, sexless. One of the detectives has a crackpot theory that it's a deformed child escaped from confinement from an attic. My guess is some crazy woman didn't want anyone to know she had a deformed child. She's had this kid locked up in an attic for years and never told anybody. Wouldn't be the first time. That could be a good horror movie, too. Yeah, it really could. <laughs> oh, one very last thing. Samantha Egger, who plays Nola, I'll always remember her for a movie that uh, one of my English teachers in college made me watch called The Collector. It's also a horror movie about a young, unstable man who kidnaps a young woman who he has been stalking. He imprisons her, hoping that she'll fall in love with him. She begins to feel some Stockholm Syndrome and has some opportunities to escape and doesn't take them. He grows disinterested in her because he doesn't really understand her as a human. He forgets to feed her and she gets sick and she dies in his basement. Film ends with him looking to catch another young lady. Fascinating. Really, really bleak stuff. Did you like it? I felt like my heart was ripped out of me when I watched it. It's one of those movies that makes you really question if you can be a feminist and like horror movies because it's a movie about men objectifying women. And and the ending is so bleak. I was really, really horrified by it. I don't know if it's a feminist issue, but the tables were turned in Ex Machina where I felt like my heart got ripped out when the male hero is left to die. It's not by a woman, but the woman-shaped android. Absolutely. And you know that he's going to starve to death in that prison. And that she has no feelings about it whatsoever. Exactly. And it's she's not really a woman, which is the trick that he's fallen for. It is the glamour and fantasy that men have of women that she has successfully used against him. That's true. 
But as soon as he's served his purpose, even though he is a nice guy and willingly helped her, he is meaningless and useless to her, and he is left to die. That kind of ripped me up as well. All right. We'll do Black Christmas 1974 next time. The Brothers Grimmer is a production of the Piwacket Podcast Network, all rights reserved. Our music is by Charlie Duggan, age eight. Charlie will not be permitted to listen to this podcast until he is 18 years old. Both parents die like each other, drunk at the hands of a midget. Yeah, they're both drunk. Both parents are drunk, correct? This movie does not make you want to move to Canada. It is so gray. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was beautiful in its own way. I think I think the light is kind of stunning. Thank you.